0: Good morning guys. My name is Nathan. I serve here on the equipping team and uh, have a lot to cover this morning. So we're going to jump right in. All right. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter two. If you're tracking along with us um, so far, uh, for, I guess, first of all, if, if this is your first time, welcome. We've been going through the gospel of Mark and if you've been tracking through with us, you know that this week we're covering like supposed to be covering like two chapters. <laughs> and uh, some of y'all are like, man, we might be here a while, you know, uh, not going to do that. Okay, I'm going to focus in on just uh, two little uh, stories <clears throat> that that happened to be at the very beginning of our of our time. But um, hopefully, <clears throat> as you go um, and you're reading through, you've uh, gone through uh, Mark two twenty three all the way through uh, chapter three verse thirty four. Um, <clears throat> I kind of got to short end of the stick on this because I really wanted to talk about how Jesus calmed the storm, right? And Jesus in uh, Mark four thirty-five 35, it's one of my favorite uh, passages in, in all the scripture. But, uh, <clears throat> but this is uh, what we're going to cover this morning is, I think, extremely applicable. I know, I know as I was preparing for it, I was uh, conversing back, uh, back and forth with a buddy of mine who lives uh, out in Northern California, who's been he's one of my best friends in the world. Um, has, has been a, a huge encouragement in my discipleship to Jesus. And as I was talking with him about some of these things, I was like, man, um, as I'm preparing for this, this is really convicting. <laughs> you know? And uh, uh, So this has been good for my heart, and hopefully it'll be good um, for yours. So let, let's, let's read, starting in chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll go through uh, chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going throughout the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick up some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some of it to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue, um, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked them, So I, I want to start uh, this morning and go through, a, I'm going to take about five minutes or so and walk you through kind of a history of who, because look guys, anytime you come to the text, you first need to be asking, what is the context that, I, that this ha- story happens in? Who are the main actors, who, set, basically like set the stage, okay? This is called, uh, this is good Bible study met- methodology, And so you should always be asking, who are the people talking, where are they coming from, who are are these people, what's their background, why are they asking what they're asking, those sorts of things. So we're just going to, I'm going to take a few minutes and just answer that question really quickly. So who are the Pharisees? Um, The Pharisees, uh, really, to, to really get a good grasp of this, we need to go all the way back to about 605 B.C., so like some 600 years prior to this happening, um, the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem and they basically sacked the city, burned the temple to the ground, right? And they took a bunch of um, religious and kind of upper echelon Jews back to, back to Babylon with them, all right? Um, and then the, the Jews stayed there for some 70, 80 years in Babylon before remnants of them began to return back to Israel in 539, 538 under the Persians, okay? During that time, um, the, the Jews had lost a vast majority of their capacity to um, be able to have a central uh, place of worship, namely the temple, because it was gone and they were in a foreign land, right? And so what began to develop during this time um, was what is was, was called the oral tradition. So you have the written Word, you have the written Old Testament, the written Torah, and what began to happen during this time is, it, is people would uh, orally transmit the Torah and then begin to add things to it. So you'd heard it said, don't work on the Sabbath. And this is what that means. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And they begin to unpack all of this. So, th- so they, were, um, they were adding things to the written law. Um, fast forward about 500 years. I don't have time to cover. But in 175, so, Jew- so the Jews had returned back to Israel. And in 175, a Syrian king named Antiochus IV came down and started to set up uh, pagan altars all over Israel, including one in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, right? Um, not a good idea. <laughs> so he does this, though, and begins to call himself a god and demands that, that the Jews worship him. Well, there was a group known as the Hasidim, and the Hasidim is just a Hebrew term that means faithful ones, uh, righteous ones, pious ones. And these guys uh, basically said, hey, we're not going to let this happen. So they started a guerrilla warfare um, that uh, was started under a guy named Mattathias, and his son Judas was the one who really um, pushed, pushed the Syrians out of Israel. This is known as the Maccabean Revolt. You can actually read about it in the Book of Maccabees. All right, um, Judas, Ma- Judas, uh, his nickname was in this Aramaic term named Maccabah. Right, that just sounds awesome he's like the William Wallace of the Jews, right? <clears throat> Did you know that the Aramaic term for, uh, the Aramaic term Makaba literally means hammerer, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I want to know that guy, you know? So Judas drives them out <clears throat> and, uh, purifies the temple. they, uh, the Jews still celebrate this, right? It's a feast of dedication. It's called Hanukkah, right? This is what they celebrate. And and uh, Judas dies, his brother Simon takes over. And when Simon takes over, he does pretty well, but then he dies. And then he, his son, so Judas's nephew, is a guy named John, uh, John Hyrcanus. And John Hyrcanus um, started to fight with some of these Hasidim, pious Jews. And he rejected them and began to embrace um, the values of a group known as the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the one, kind of the aristocratic power type, who um, were a little looser in their interpretation. And in his rejection of the Hasidim, they broke away from him and they started a group known as the Pharisees. Okay? Um, <clears throat> their uh, heavy, heavy emphasis on piety, on, on strict adherence to the law, um, definitely committed to God and to uh, what they believed um, God would have them do. Um, when, when John Hyrcanus died, his son, Alexander Janius, um, basically embraced the Greek expansion that was happening in Israel and, and continued to adopt practices that these Pharisees would consider pagan, right? Um, including setting up gymnasiums and, and you know, wrestling in the nude and um, practicing all sorts of things that they would consider, hey, this is not what Yahweh would have for us. And um, because they, the Pharisees rejected Alexander Janius, they actually rose up against him and he crucified 800 of them in one day, right? While, this is crazy. I'm not trying to like, you know, be, I'm just telling you what happened. He crucified 800 people in one day. While they were being crucified, Janius lined up their wives and children in front of them and killed them while the guys were on the cross, right? So... I mean, I know things are bad, but that's pretty bad, right? Um, and these, this is the type of persecution the Pharisees are, um, are experiencing. Um, in 63, because of that type of persecution, the Pharisees actually supported a, a Roman effort to come in and fill a power vacuum that had happened once, all, once uh, Alexander Janius died. And so during that power vacuum, the Pharisees were like, Rome, come on, like stabilize this. And so um, they actually helped the Romans take Jerusalem in 63, which set up a guy named Herod, who became the king over Israel. He was actually not a Jew, an Idumean or an Edomite. Um, and he he sat in power under the Romans. Initially, because the Pharisees helped him become the king, he was like, yeah, I like you guys. But then because of his corruption and his impiety and the fact that he was like slaughtering his family and other people, the Pharisees were like, dude, stop. So they began to oppose him, and then he started executing them, right? The whole thing is totally jacked up. (laughs) And guess what? Jesus was born into this mess, right? At the end of Herod's reign, A a peasant girl traveled from Galilee, Nazareth in Galilee, down to Bethlehem in Judea, to the city of David, and she gave birth to a son. Right, and his name is Jesus. This is the type of political environment that Jesus is born into. So these Pharisees are—they're not afraid of—they've been persecuted for a long time. They're not afraid of 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 getting their you know, hands dirty, feet wet, whatever you want to call it, right? And so they step into this situation and, and, uh, and begin to, uh, man, if, if somebody goes against either the, the written law or their oral law, then they're not afraid to step up and, and, and do something about it, right? Um, so what are some of their, the characteristics of the Pharisees? They have a strong commitment both to the written word and to the oral Torah, right? So they, they consider both, the written Torah and also their, their oral interpretation of what, that, what the Torah means on the same authoritative status, right? <clears throat> They're widely regarded by the people as authoritative because they consistently were standing up to corruption and foreign powers. They were extremely popular among the people, okay? And, and the people basically, if the Pharisees said something, did something, told the people to do something, they were like, jump, the people were like, how high, you know? They're political rivals with the Sadducees, who typically the Sadducees were less interested in being faithful to Torah and more interested in maintaining their power. Um, actually, when Jesus was crucified, Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, was a Sadducee. <clears throat> they actively undermine corruption or, or foreign rule, which we already talked about. They're heavily persecuted. All right. And so when they show up and they critique Jesus, why are they critiquing? I mean, that, dude, I mean, Jesus' disciples just walking through a grain field, picking some grain and eating it. Like, what's wrong with that? You know? <clears throat> well, here's why. Because in the Mishnah, uh, in, the, in the Sabbath Mishnah, again, uh, so what the heck is Mishnah? <clears throat> during, that, uh, during that time of exile, um, the, Israel, the Jews, their oral Torah began to be put into two different books. Um, there's a Babylonian Talmud and a Jerusalem Talmud. And the Talmud consists of these Mishnahs, and the Mishnah is simply a written down account of the oral Torah. So you have, you have Torah, the Old Testament, right? Genesis through uh, uh, Deuteronomy, and then, and then the rest of the Old Testament, which is called the Tanakh. And then you have the Mishnah, which is the oral um, authoritative word. And both the Tanakh and the Mishnah in, in the Jews' mind are both authoritative. Right? <clears throat> well, here's what it says: The main categories of labor that's forbidden on the Sabbath are 40 minus one: seeding, plowing, harvesting, bundling, threshing, winnowing, so- selecting, grinding, sifting, netting, baking, shearing, woolly, wool, bleaching it, carting it, dyeing it, spinning, warp, uh, warping, setting up two loops. Uh, weaving two threads, undoing two threads, tying, untying, (laughs) sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, trapping a deer, slaughtering it, skinning it, salting it, tanning its hide, scraping it, cutting it, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two more letters, building and destroying, extinguishing, kindling, hitting with a hammer, transporting from one domain to another. These are the main categories of labor. You know, I'm like, is is that it? (laughs) Is is there anything else? (laughs) I mean, it's a... uh, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a very strict um, oral tradition that had been passed down to say, when, when you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Okay, got it. Well, here's what that means. Brrr, and they, they put all of this burden on the people. Um, in, in the Mishnah Shabbat, uh, again, um, in the Sabbath Mishnah, if one is liable, one is liable if he carries out a cow's mouthful worth of straw or a camel's mouthful worth of pea stalks or a lamb's mouthful worth of grain or a kid's mouthful worth of grass, Or a moist moist garlic or moist onion leaves the size of a dried fig. Or a kid's mouthful worth of dry garlic or onion leaves, right? So it's it's extremely specific about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And then in the Mishnah Sanhedrin, which is the, the legal oral law, it says this. One who desecrates the Sabbath through an act for which a wanton violation renders him liable to spiritual excision. He's cast out, right? And a violation in error obliges him to sacrifice a sin offering, okay? In other words, um, when, when the disciples uh, are uh, pulling heads of grain and eating them, when Jesus is healing the withered man's hand, right, then um, this is a clear violation from uh, in the eyes of the Pharisees, and Jesus is to be held accountable to that, right? And, and the entire time, in their piety, they're thinking, um, we are... Upholding and enforcing what God would have us do. <clears throat> well, it's, it's fascinating to see how Jesus answers them, right? Because in, in verse 25 and 26 of, of chapter 2, he says this. Um, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God on the Sabbath, and ate the bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and then he started giving it to other people who were not priests. This is what David did. You you don't seem to be mad at him, and what's implied is something greater than David is standing here in front of you, right? Which, Which he goes on to say, Um, The son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Um, He says uh, in verse four of chapter three, what's lawful to do on the Sabbath? Is it to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? In other words, Jesus is saying, look, um, in all of your piety to keep the law of God, you have distorted the intent that God meant when he passed this along to you, right? When God gave you this, it wasn't so you could um, tunnel vision, look at it, and be like, okay, how can we be so precise in following exactly the law of God? Because here's the principle. When you, when you focus in and become so hyper-focused on obe- obedience to the commands of God, at the expense of the whole and the intent, then you lose the whole thing. That's what Jesus is saying. You have distorted the law of God. Look at me, look uh, real quickly, sorry, look real quickly at Luke chapter 11. Um, this is just, this, this is worth reading, all right? Luke 11, 37 to 54. G, when G he's, he's uh, um, again, he's interacting with the Pharisees. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee, noting that G, noticing that Jesus did not wash before the meal, was surprised. Um, You have not followed the oral Torah. And Jesus said to him, uh, now then you Pharisee, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, um, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But give what's inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. That's, That's fascinating, right? clean out the inside, and even if the outside is dirty, you're still clean, right? Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love um, the... You love the most important seats in the synagogue and greeting in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. This is hilarious. One of the experts in the law answered him, hey, teacher, um, when you say these things, you're insulting us also. And Jesus is like, dude, I'm just getting started. (laughs) You know, hang on. Jesus said, and you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your forefathers did when they killed the prophets and you built their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all of the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. And Jesus left there. Check this out. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Right? These are the, um, Jesus is running smack dab into, into the Pharisees' interpretation of Torah, and he's saying, you have taken away the essence of what this was meant to be, and you've made it something else. So before we think away, before we think we're getting away from all this, like scotch clean, right? Um, he's, he's saying that, uh, you know, as he's saying, like, you know, I'm, 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 I'm angered at this. I'm deeply distressed at your stubbornness of heart. Right. And so, um, the, the scary thing is, guys, is that um, it's, it's easy for us in the, in the 21st century to look back at the first century and understand the context and be like, oh, yeah, man, I mean, what? of course. You know, why, why, did, why couldn't they recognize Jesus, right? And, and we, we kind of stand in our high place and our, in our piety and look down on the Pharisees. And so um, I would say that one of the most dangerous things um, in evangelicalism today, in in context like this, where you have dudes that'll get up um, before the sun is up and, and drive in the rain to come sit in a chair so that they can hear something from scripture um, so that th- they want to be faithful to God, right? There is an implicit danger in that, right? And it's called legalism. So I want to I give you a little, just a little questionnaire, all right? Legalism questionnaire. It's a little bit funny, a little bit hopefully punch in the gut. You know, it, it was definitely a punch in the gut for me. Question number 1, do you keep score? All right? What I mean by that is, man, here's all the awesome stuff I've done lately. And the awesome stuff I've done lately outweighs those places that I've struggled. So I'm doing pretty good. You know? Or on the negative side of it, man, I've only I've only sinned like I've only sinned in some of these major areas that I struggle in, that I go to regen for, you know. I've only struggled in those things like maybe two or three times this month. So next month, I'll be doing better if I only struggle in them like once or twice, right? You're keeping score. <clears throat> Question number two, do you view the disciplines, Bible study, prayer, solitude, meditation, meditation, scripture memory, evangelism, these types of things, secrecy, which we'll get to in a second. Do you view the disciplines and things to do to be a good Christian, right? Or to please God? Like I have to do these things in order for God to look at me and be like, yeah, Nathan, man, dude, you're doing great. You're my son. Good job. One of the ways you can answer this is when you struggle in those things, do you feel like God is not pleased with you? Right? Do you humble brag? Is it important for you? Uh, is it important to you for others to know how you serve Jesus or how you've been used by God? Right. This is pretty prevalent around here, frankly, guys. One of the things we know, need to learn how to practice is the discipline of secrecy. Right. So for for like, let's say um, I, I spend time with my wife and, and we have um, uh, as all married couples should very intimate moments. Right. It would it would it would diminish. And, and distort that moment for me to be like, babe, that was amazing. I gotta go tell all my friends about that, you know? So they can see ultimately how awesome we're doing, you know? It diminishes the relationship. There should be times in your life when, when you um, serve Jesus out of, a, out of a heart of gratitude and love for him and you don't tell a soul where you're like, man, that's, Lord, that's between you and me right? Instead of feeling like, oh man, I've got some I've got a great story to tell my summit group when I show up on Thursday morning. So they can be like, man, that guy's got it going on. Dude, he's killing it. Right? Humble brag. Crazy. Do you compare your spiritual life to others? Do you look down on people less disciplined? Man, if they were just more disciplined, if they just if they just enacted these things, they would really grow. Or if you look at somebody like, man, that guy's way too rigid. <laughs> he needs to relax, you know? Um, is it difficult for you to unconditionally forgive others or is it difficult for you to grasp the unconditional forgiveness of God? Our capacity to forgive other people is directly correlated to our understanding of of our own fallenness and brokenness and our capacity to receive the love and and the forgiveness of God, right? Right? It's um, one of the ways you you know, like when you start to judge other people based on that sin pattern that, that just won't go away, right? Well, man, I guess I'm, I'm glad I'm not like that. Um, you're a legalist. Do you find yourself ever thinking that that everything would be better if more people thought and acted like you do? <laughs> exactly. Do you view the Bible as a book of rules to follow? or as a means to grow in intimacy with Jesus? Do you view God as someone to obey more than someone to love? Here's the deal, guys. Legalism, the goal of legalism is that you would would obey. You would become a moral person. It's a means of acceptance. And I'm doing this so that God will love me, so that other people will love me, so that I will love myself. The, it's, it's powered by guilt and shame. It absolutely lacks any kind of power to transform you. You become a whitewashed tomb. The gospel is that, that the goal is not moral behavior or that you would obey a certain set of rules. The goal is God himself. Intimacy with Christ. It is a means of grace to know God. It is empowered by the spirit. It's fueled by love. You participate You participate with the Spirit who alone has the power to transform you. And ultimately, this is the saddest thing about legalism, is that it absolutely and in every way conceals Jesus. When you are caught in this pattern of legalism, you cannot see Christ. You you know what you end up seeing? You end up seeing a God of your own making, just like the Pharisees did. Because the Pharisees had taken the law of God and distorted it to make it fit what they wanted it to fit. And then when the God of the law showed up and stood in front of them, they could not recognize him. That's a scary thought. That should maybe like, that should maybe check your spirit a little bit. Right? It's is great Keller's book is just amazing. If you're not reading Keller's book, I would encourage you to do so. Um, not so you can show up on Thursday morning and be like, I read Keller's book, you know. <laughs> we're addicted to the law, man. It's crazy. Um, but, but Keller's book is really good. I, I, I encourage you because it's, 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 uh, it's good for your soul, um, it connects you to Jesus. The word Sabbath means a deep rest, a deep peace. It's a near synonym for shalom, a state of wholeness and flourishing in every dimension of life. When Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus means that he is the Sabbath. He is the source of the deep rest that we need. Most of us work and work trying to prove ourselves to convince God, others, and ourselves that we're good people. That work is never over um, until we rest in the gospel. At the end of his great act of creation, the Lord said, it is finished, and he could rest. On the cross, at the end of his great act of redemption, Jesus said, it is finished, and we can rest. On the cross, Jesus was saying of the work underneath your work, the thing that makes you truly weary, this need to prove yourself, um, because, of, because who you are and what you do are never good enough that it is finished. He has lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died. If you rely on Jesus' finished work, you know that God is satisfied with you and you can be satisfied with life. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter three, let me turn there if you want, but he gives this resume of all of the great things that he had done. He's like, look, if you want to be a legalist, I'm your captain, right? Here are all of the things that I've done. And yet Paul um, experiences this radical transformation of the power of the Spirit. And, and, and frankly, um, it's not because of all the things that he did to please God. It's because Jesus showed up and knocked him on his butt and said, hey, stand up. Look at me in the face. Know me. Love me. Because I love you. Right? And he, he, he touched Something in, in Saul um, in such a deep and profound way that, S- that Saul's name was changed. He was forever different because of an encounter with the living Christ not with a set of rules to follow. And this is what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse four. This is crazy. When you think about all of the the pharisaical tradition and all of the the legalism that was behind Paul and and all of the the first century Judaism um, that existed in the day in that climate, Paul said this, Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes That is crazy. Christ is the end of the law. I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. All of the work, all of God's work um, is, is culminated and fulfilled in the finished work of Jesus. So you don't have to work. That's the gospel. Be free. Be free to, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, to be, be conformed to his death, right? I want to know him. This is what Paul is saying in Philippians 3. In the, um, whatever was gained to me, those things I count as loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus, my Lord, right? And so, every, you know, maybe every time, I think the I did this the last time. Every single time I talk, I'm probably gonna end with this because I think this call continues to come to us. It's not just a one-time thing for you to come. Jesus is, is standing here today, I, I believe in a very real sense through the power of the Holy Spirit and engaging your heart. And he's saying this to you. Whatever, you fill in your name, all right, at the beginning of this. I'll say mine, you say yours. Nathan, come to me. Are you weary? Are you burdened? I will give you rest. Take take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me. For I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. Because my yoke is easy my burden is light. When you yoke yourself to Jesus, not, not, not the law, not transforming the, the gospel into the law, which we do, but yoke yourself to Jesus, um, you will find rest for your souls. That's my prayer for me, for sure. It's my prayer for you. Jesus, help us we are addicted to the law. We will take something as beautiful as the cross and turn it in to a series of rules that we need to follow out of obligation or a sense of duty to be pleasing to you, not understanding that we are fully accepted in your son, that we're fully loved. So help us, Jesus, help me. And I pray that every single one of these guys would day in and day out wake up and come to you. Um, Hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment to walk in intimacy with you. We, We have to, we have to. Help us to see you, Jesus, and to know the love that you have for us. We pray these things in your name by the power of the Spirit. Amen.